Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. James Orr from Friends of the Earth Northern Ireland was my guest on today's show. We had an incredibly vast conversation that includes the destruction of our local environment and quality of food by industrial farming, the push by those in private industry to industrialize Northern Ireland's agriculture, systems thinking in our food production, and our place as part of a global food ecosystem. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's James Orr. Fantastic. Okay, so, James, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Thanks very much for, for agreeing to chat to me. Great, absolute pleasure to, to meet you, Josh, for the first time. Um, thanks yeah. for the invite. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe in, at some point in the future we'll get to meet uh, physically rather than virtually. But <laughs> well, maybe by the time this goes out, uh, you know, we'll we'll be moving towards that sort of thing anyway. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about your work at at Friends of the Earth. So why don't you tell me a little bit about how you you first got involved um, with Friends of the Earth? Yeah, certainly. So I suppose I'm a bit long in the tooth. You know, I've been around environmental stuff generally for many, many years. I'm a bit unusual because I don't like the term environmental. Um, I always say I'm, I'm work for Friends of the Earth. I'm passionate about saving the earth and saving the people on the earth. But I don't like to call myself an environmentalist. Um, and I suppose that's because of my background. You know, I, I worked for local government for a while. I've worked in... You know, as sort of a lawyer, I've tried to set up some businesses, you know, I've worked in bird conservation, you know, I don't have a particularly varied background, but I think what it's taught me is that all the world's problems are totally interconnected and that we need to develop um, new ways of imagining the world. Um, if I can get this quote right, it's from a guy who's a systems thinker called Gregory Bateson, and he, he was a real influence on me, you know, when I started reading about his work and other people like Schumacher, E.F. Schumacher as well, who wrote the book Small is Beautiful. But what Bateson said is that all the world's problems are basically as a result of the difference between how the world works and how people think. And I think what that means for me is that we need to be developing new ways of thinking that are um, based on complexity thinking, based on complexity theory and systems thinking and recognize that everything is totally interconnected. And I suppose the subject that we're talking about now is one of those very specific areas that, you know, something goes into the food chain one end and all sorts of strange thing comes out the other, you know. So we need to be thinking, I think, generally as um, people involved in sort of progressive movements about how everything is not just connected, but how we need to build relationships that build other relationships as well. You know, ecology was the science that taught us that everything is totally and inextricably interrelated. And I think in some respects, we may have um, forgotten those principles. And that's that's been a sort of burning interest of mine for quite a number of years, you know. Mm. That's a really, really, like, I love that you start with talking about the how interconnected all of our world is when we're talking about about food and about about agriculture 
um before uh before this summer i i when i read um Cytopia by carolyn Steele, i really didn't uh, like properly appreciate just how how interconnected food and, and agriculture is with with the entirety of our, of our entire world and, and economy and, and social life and, and culture. And she like the book really made me appreciate just how, how connected all those things are. And, and she, she put it like very simply, she said, food is life. And it, it literally is. We're, we're literally putting like the things that keep us alive into our body. And, and a lot of people maybe don't even, don't even consider the where, what they're what they're putting into their mouth has come from uh, anymore uh, compared to you know i just feel like there's a a real disconnect between our food and, and where it comes from and 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 that kind of is probably i don't know a great a great way of or the the disconnect there is is what we're we're missing in in our understanding of yeah just how to how to reimagine the world as, as you say um but so where did your interest first come where did your interest first come from in in trying to imagine everything as like a a large complex system like when did that first i don't know come across the table at you i i suppose um it it certainly wasn't a light bulb moment it was, it was effectively um just maybe reading a few things you know when i was a teenager like fritjof capra that wrote a book called The Tower Physics, you know, and then another one called The Turning Point. And you now here was somebody interested in like quantum science, you know, and, and physics, talking about food, you know, and talking about human health and talking about environmental protection. So, you know, this idea that things are disconnected is really, you know, in my mind, being maybe a lonely teenager going out fishing in the lake and stuff like that. And, listening to the bird song and you know smelling the water mint along the the lake's edge you know and i'm thinking and then northern Ireland going belly up you know with crazy sectarian stripe you know mm. just a mile away from, you, you just sort of think well what is it all about you know and and I, and I think one of the the biggest problems we face is the fact that we've lost our like what you might call an ecological imagination. We we certainly in Western culture, you know, we've lost our our principles of interconnectedness where we, we tend to see everything from an extractive mentality. You know, what can we take from a relationship? What can we take from this planet? Instead of viewing the world as a relative and as a friend, um, we tend to view it as something to exploit. And I think, you know, this idea of, Disconnection is very much a very recent phenomenon. You know, it's certainly not part of um, older cultures within these islands. It's certainly not part of many indigenous cultures across the world. And I suppose I can't help feeling that where I live and work, I, I love the place where I live. You know, I love Strangford Lock and I love getting out there. And, you know, I feel part of it, you know, and, you know, I want to do my best to try and make sure that it exists and it flourishes and it evolves. And, and I think as well as that, you know, studying law and studying the planning system over many years has really got me to think again that, you know, our whole basis of this edifice of current civilization is based on property law, is based on the fact that, you know, 
one of the things I'm working on at the minute in terms of extractive industries is looking at Loch Ney, this massive, unique lake system in the middle of Northern Ireland. And the, the companies that extract the bed of the loch, their machines, their barges has more rights than the loch itself. You know, that a whale is worth more dead than alive, that the court system and the legal system, you know, we're we meant to have something called a rule of law, but that's based entirely on the fact that, you know, with the power dynamics that exist in contemporary culture, that Loch Ney doesn't have any rights, that mountains don't have any rights not to be decapitated, that salmon coming up a river, they don't have rights, the river doesn't have rights, but yet the machinery that destroys that river has immense legal rights, you know. So so I think the, the foundations upon which we've built our our civilization, you know, need to be challenged. And, you know, they are being challenged at the minute, you know, so we have, for example, the rights of nature movement, you know, one of the most flourishing um, movements of grassroots democracy across the world now. Um, rivers across the world, you know, mountains, lake systems are now being given rights to exist you know, as well as to flourish and evolve and to regenerate, you know. So so I think there's something really interesting happening, you know, and it's, that area of law is something that really has interested me for a long time. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment, you know, when you see, well, you know, why does the uh, the machine that's um, destroying the Amazon rainforest and turning um, rich sort of, habitats into soy plantations to feed the chickens and the pigs that are kept in factory farms in Northern Ireland and the proteins exported, but then the waste to left behind is dumped in Northern Ireland. That story, you know, of our place in the global food chain, a dystopian, very disturbing food chain, you know, has to be told. And I think one of the ways you approach it is just by, yeah, everything in this world is totally interconnected. And we imperil ourselves if we forget that. And, and that's effectively what's happening with the global food story at the minute. I can only come at it from my understanding of it as someone who's been campaigning in Northern Ireland for a few years in this. But mm -hmm. I think the story here has been really, really interesting because we've been faced with a tiny country operating on a global scale for some reason trying to feed the world when we can't even feed ourselves. And we, we know that that's a mirage. You know, we're not feeding the world. We're dumping onto the world you know, products that in many cases from factory farming, you know, the problem isn't traditional agriculture here. The, the problem is these mega corporations who have exposed or who have exploited a regulatory um, disaster in Northern Ireland, you know, where environmental laws aren't applied anywhere the way they should. But certainly compared to other jurisdictions, we are the dirty corner of the UK, but mm -hmm. potentially the dirty corner of Europe. And these companies have predated that um, vulnerability, taking advantage of the fact that we're not good at enforcing any environmental law. And now we have, in less than 10 years, our entire ecosystems, particularly, you know, atmospheric pollution, river and lake pollution at saturation point. They can't cope with any more phosphates or nitrates or the waste that comes from these very intensive factory farms. Mm -hmm. Yet... The corporations have benefit immeasurably from massive corporation welfare payments. You know, if you look at the scandal of Northern Ireland in recent years, the renewable heat incentive scheme, 
that was a corporate welfare payment to some of these global corporations. Um, one company received half of all these massive subsidies. They run into hundreds of millions of pounds. And hey, presto, that company is um, a global food giant. Mm. These companies have no interest here. They're interested in taking advantage of us. And they'll close up shop and then move on elsewhere if we ever get a handle on the regulatory regime. But what we're seeing now is a massive increase in pollution that's affecting not just ecosystem health, but public health. And, you know, this juggernaut of some of these companies just doesn't seem to be stopped, even though they were involved or the the government orchestrated a complicity with these companies that led to a collapse of democracy. You know, we didn't have a government for three years because of these botched schemes that were handing over hundreds of million pounds of public money to these companies. And we have another one just published in the last few weeks, another similar scheme which runs into billions of pounds of corporate subsidy. We have a scheme recently called Gas to the West, where 90% of the beneficiaries of the fossil fuel expansion into the West and Northern Ireland are the same companies as well. So this is a huge scandal that needs exposed. And, you know, from a systems perspective and joining the dots, you know, the RHI inquiry that led to the breakup of government, the Honourable Digester scandal that's come out in the last few weeks, the gas to the wet. All this is entirely connected. And it's not just accidental. You know, the collapsing of ecosystems and democracy goes hand in hand in, in this particular part of the world. But this was deliberately orchestrated. This was managed. This was thought out by some very clever people at the heart of government with these businesses to say, well, how can we shift the rural economy here towards a factory farming type of economy, which does nothing to support traditional families? and nothing to support their local economies. Um, and how can we get around these environmental laws, You know, many of which are European environmental laws? How can we avoid them? How can we suppress discontent? How can we buy off you know, the, the interests of people who may complain against this? This was very carefully considered and very carefully orchestrated. And it goes from, I think, complicity in terms of these environmental crimes against natural habitats and against human health and against traditional economies, it goes from complicity to collusion on a very, very grand scale. And I think the joining of the dots of this story is fascinating, you know, because it underlines real problems with the economy, with our democracy, and now with our ecosystem health as well. Hmm. The the RHI scandal was the the first one really that, that that you mentioned there. I just want to take the opportunity to 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 plug our own show that we did with with Sam McBride. Um, it was a great interview uh, talking to him about about R, the RHI and and burned his book about it. It was, um, and one of the things we focused on was the fact that um, that the the company that that was taking half 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 of all subsidies, as you pointed out, was um, from Brazil. And that it wasn't even that this money was was being pumped into the Northern Irish um, economy at the very top end. It was literally just flowing straight out of the country. It, like it, it was straight from from the taxpayer to the government and then out yeah. of the country. Like it was not it was not going back into the, the the local economy at all. It was just all the profit was just being like shipped straight out of the country. Um, which is honestly for me one of the most tragic parts of it, because um in the, in the like in the smallest win possible i was hoping it's like well you know if if this money is at least gone 
out of out and, and been given out and we have no way of protecting it maybe at least it's in northern ireland and some nice hot tub dealers will will get like a big bump in their business or i don't know <laughs> um, you know the luxury goods end of the economy will do really well out of this <laughs> we did have a horse solarium um I never knew what a horse solarium was, but so um, a ho- like a like a sauna for a horse. Yeah, the, one of those benefited from one of these um, so-called green energy schemes, you know. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with anaerobic digestion or or biogas in itself, you know. That's not the issue. It's how these technologies, which we need to get ourselves out of the climate crisis, you know, have been corrupted by a system that was sustaining an unsustainable type of economy. But yeah, there was, it was also a, I think it was a Ferrari showroom as well, and the Boucher Road in Belfast got one of these schemes as well. You know, and when we have 40% of households in fuel poverty, absolute yeah. No, it's it's shocking. Now, you, you mentioned there that, that you think this is um, an active attempt to to industrialize the entire farming industry of, of Northern Ireland or our agriculture would, would you be would you say that's a fair assessment of what you said or or, or would you well, yeah absolutely yeah I, I think I think there's no one would doubt that I think okay. it's called a going for growth strategy and it was introduced by the agri-food strategy board which is was appointed by government ministers an all-male board of people who are um inextricably linked to global agri-food companies. And they sat down with government support to reshape the rural economy and to redefine what food means. The interesting thing you mentioned there, Josh, about Brazil, you know, like there was a, I think it was six months profits of 100 million handed over to one of these companies from Moy Park in Northern Ireland recently Mm. to, to global investors. But the the problems are also um, global as well. The, the, these just don't cause a distortion in our local market and um, problems with um, the waste not being disposed of properly, or because we have so much of it, you know, our land is saturated and the waterways are saturated. But there's a really unfortunate side effect of this that these caged animals that now run into um, farms of you know two three hundred thousand birds for example mm. in one intensive poultry farm we have we're now the epicenter for intensive pig production across Europe you know one of the the elements of the going for growth strategy would result in or is resulting in the same amount of waste that London produces from its sewage system from the factory pig farms yet there's never been any provision made to deal with that waste. So imagine dumping a city the size of London. This is Victorian, you know. You can imagine problems with dysentery and typhoid and cholera, and, you know, mm. and that led to public health access in Victorian times, you know. But the same situation is happening here. You know, this, the equivalent amount of filth um, in these pig farms represents a city of 10, 12 million people of London going into a population of 1.8 million in a tiny country where nitrates and phosphates are already an endemic massive pollution problem. But the other element of this was the importation of soy from um, South America. So the savannas and um, 
tropical rainforests were being destroyed, indigenous people were being displaced, are being displaced, to grow this food, this protein, that then is shipped all the way to Northern Ireland. The profits are funneled out to offshore bank accounts. Um, a lot of the protein is funneled out elsewhere, and we get left with the toxic filth. You know, it is what we call Northern Ireland's dirty secret. And this is what happens when these companies come in and take advantage of lax regulation and a government that doesn't seem to want to enforce its own laws. So the situation is, is huge, it's massive. And what you said is absolutely true, that this was a deliberate strategy to industrialize um, Northern Ireland's food industry. Um, but I think it was more than that. It was almost an embarrassment of our political culture with what's going on here, taking advantage of a very fragile peace process and saying, we have made it now an international stage. We can go to Brazil and concoct these amazing deals with these global corporations. And what they haven't realized is that, you know, that these companies are not interested in Northern Ireland, that there's no real respect from them for how we have traditionally managed our land and grown some of the finest food in the whole of Europe, mm. and that they'll be here one day and, and gone the next. So in an attempt to, I think, um, give us some degree of pride that you know Northern Ireland's a small country can play its way in the global stage, we have effectively sold the family jewels, you know, and mm. one of the things that people come here, you know, they're they're impressed by not just the quality of the environment here, but also the diversity of it, you know. We've got mountains, we've lakes, we've rivers, we've interest in early Christian heritage, we've fascinating archaeology. Mm. We have uh, a whole mixture of different places within a very short period. You can really get a fantastic, you know, holiday in such a tiny place, even three or four days, you know. And But, you know, that that comes at a cost, you know, because, you know, these systems are also very fragile. It's a very wet country. Um, it's a country that's got lots and lots of different water boys that are water bodies that are very susceptible to pollution, and um, it's a very busy place as well. It's very hard to go anywhere without seeing a rural settlement or a rural business, and of course these businesses rely on people, and these people are now susceptible to a lot of the health risks associated with some of the pollutants, particularly ammonia pollution as well. It's gone off on the Richter scale here. 95% of all protected sites are now exceeding the level at which damage occurs. And these sites have been irreversibly um, harmed because the pollutants are just so insidious. Some of them, like phosphates, get locked into the ecosystems for years. And of course, you know, when you mix nitrogen dioxide with from say car exhaust fumes and ammonia, you get carcinogens as well. So we're seeing a rise in premature deaths from respiratory diseases and, and other diseases caused by these industries. And what's going to happen in five years' time? These industries decide to move on elsewhere. The toxic filth is left behind and the liability, you know, not only do we pay them colossal sums of money to come in here and bend our rules to facilitate them, but we're going to be less with the toxic residue it, it just is completely the wrong model it's a model that needs to be ditched and we're fortunate as well is that we have an emerging food culture you know a, a wholesome food culture um, where people are respecting the animals um, where there's much more interest in plant-based diets for example in northern ireland 
farmers markets are taking off again. Um, St. George's Market in Belfast is one of the finest markets in Europe. And we're seeing fantastic examples of, you know, new vibrant local economies. But behind us is the spectre, is the monster of the going for growth strategy in these in these corporations, these predatory corporations. And that's what we've been focusing on to try and get a, a moratorium on new factory farms coming into Northern Ireland with some degree of success as well. Mm. The, the the food culture is actually something I was speaking to um, Paula McIntyre about. She was uh, she was really really filling me in on on some of the the incredible variety of food that we we grow here in Northern Ireland. Um, but the, honestly, one of the the, the most tragic parts um, of what you're saying is is for me the fact that so I I only recently discovered as well that a lot of the frozen um, chicken that we have, for example, in our supermarkets is shipped in from Thailand and Vietnam. So we are creating what we consider to be like the the high quality Northern Irish chicken. Um, We're taking all of the waste for that. We're shipping that out of the country around the world. And then we're importing chicken from Vietnam and Thailand that's of far lower quality and not subject to any of the, the... the like well not any of the controls but a lot of the 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 farming laws and and agriculture um regulations that we have to have to um you uh, have to um abide by in northern ireland and then um and it's not even the fact that it's, it's ridiculous that we're we're shipping sub-quality meat from around the world when we're making much better here um is that the profit is being creamed off and we're adding a stupid number of carbon miles to the the chicken that we are eating it, because we're bringing it from halfway around the world it's such a like it's such a perverse system <laughs> oh yeah Bonk. it's it's totally bonkers you you couldn't make it up but you know and there's there's so many other angles to this you know one of the companies based in Ireland has got um support from Irish aid which is meant to support developing countries you know to create sustainable economies and that's a company that's specializing in pig products. And a lot of that research is aimed at West Africa. Um, and that's supplanting local, what you would call pig economies, subsistence economies with species whose um, genetic um, diversity is very weak that can cause disease problems for the local pig industry. and it's predicated on very intense um, conditions, which these economies have never had. And we're supplanting with Irish aid money, these traditional forms of agriculture that have supported families and communities for thousands of years with, you know, a fly by night industry, which is involved in destroying habitats across the world. And and what's it about? It's it's sheer profiteering. It's nothing else. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense economically or environmentally or health wise, or in terms of you know supporting local cultures. But yeah, that's that's the bonker system that mm-hmm. we're in. Fortunately, you know you have to temper that with the Paula McIntyre's of this world. He's just been a cheerleader for real food, proper food, wholesome mm-hmm. food, supporting local businesses, supporting local industries, and they're beginning to flourish. They're beginning to flourish more under the lockdown. I guess it's because people are 
not traveling as much, but also people now realize their health is their wealth, you know, and you don't want to be eating a lot of this factory produced uh, material, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not food, you know, mm. whatever it is, it's not food. You know, a lot of this stuff is, is, um, is pretending to be food, but it's, it's not food that sustains communities or sustains the human body. So, you know, we we're in a really interesting time. You know, we have an emerging new food culture at the same time as we have these extremely hegemonic companies who have no other interest than um, to extract what they can and to leave the mess behind. And that's where government comes in, isn't it? You know, that's where you expect leadership. That's where you expect, you know, decisions to be made at a strategic level as to what type of food and what type of agriculture do we want in the future and that's a debate that's raging at the minute so when a lot of groups get involved and oh my goodness we see this massive pig factory coming into our community you can't live where these giant factories are going to be put into your community against your will and then they start asking questions you know why is that law not applied where is this company's profits going to go to where do they get their foods for these captive reared animals, uh, what's the destructive process? And through those questions, you know, we're beginning to see the emergence of what's really nice as well, cross-community campaigns happening mm-hmm. at a local level and a real renaissance and people, you know, taking into their own hands the the need to hold politicians to account. Um, so we have some of the most tenacious, interconnected and vibrant community groups now who are moving from local opposition to a particular, say, giant pig factory owned by one of the big farms or and moving into the consciousness change, you know, what type of um, society and culture do they want in the future? And also in the structural change as well, well, how can we better hold our systems to account, be it through judicial review or and the enforcement of existing laws are better laws as well. So people are approaching us in a very interesting way. It's not just, you know, I don't like this particular pig factory in my community. They're asking questions is why did this happen in the first place? How is this allowed to come into my community? And what are the forces behind that? So whilst these are quite frightening um, prospects for local communities, and we've seen that in the evidence of gross atmospheric and wetland pollution. We're also seeing at the same time an emergence of accountability mechanisms from the bottom up where communities are asking the right questions and holding politicians to account because, yeah, they, you know, you've read Burns, you know, the book by Sam McBride, you've, you're obviously very well aware of, of how this has happened in Northern Ireland, but, mm. you know, these, these are dramatic problems at a local level and it's through local opposition that we're also creating the conditions for a better food culture Um, because you can't simply rely on the beautiful markets and small artisan producers if you've got these monsters in the background Mm. completely changing the economic and fiscal landscape of food production here. Mm. No, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. One of the one of the biggest things about about the the factory farm debate is that for me the most striking thing isn't that people ignore that it's bad for our environment or bad for the animals 
It's that's really bad for us. Like that, like for for the most selfish person in the world, that should be easy enough to understand. Um, like for for example, uh, I know that grain-fed beef, for example, have basically like a permanent case of indigestion, and it releases um, like toxins into their blood, which um, antibiotics are then used to suppress. Um, but it means that the meat is filled with omega six fats instead of omega three, which would be um, what you would get with a. Uh, pasture fed or just grass fed beef and um like the the over like the if your your system is overwhelmed with omega-6 fats then it, it absorbs less and less omega-3 which is really important for vision for brain function like it's it's super important to living a healthy life um and and just at that very level um it baffles me that more people aren't aren't opposed to it um but something you mentioned there uh, is is something i've been hearing and sort of thinking a lot about is that the it, everything starts in the fight back at a local level um i was wondering if you think that we've hit the peak of globalization in terms of our supply chains and our, our more specifically our food supply chains like do you think we've actually like hit the 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 biggest contraction it's going to get in terms of like how, dis how dispersed our food production gets um and we're going to sort of see a, a, a pushback now that's that's starting with with as you say like artisan farms and um sort of small local farmers markets do you think we're we're heading back in the right direction probably maybe maybe thanks to covid a little more with everyone getting yeah. a little more protectionist yeah i i think the writing is on the wall for this particular model you know, it's a highly egregious model of, that intensifies not just the conditions within which animals are kept particularly, but also it intensifies capital in, in very narrow sectors. And I think we're seeing the beginning of the end of it. They're not going to go out without a fight. Um, also, these industries are very high carbon. They're very dependent on fossil fuels. Uh, Twenty-seven percent of all greenhouse gas emissions in Northern Ireland comes from agriculture. It's the biggest single emitter of greenhouse gases, even more than energy production and transport production. So, hmm. so with you know a climate act coming into Northern Ireland in the next few years, you know these industries will will have to phase out. Um, it's simply not possible to run this type of um global food chain system without um compromising the the health of our atmosphere and, and ecosystems so it's not sustainable and on all sorts of of levels we also still have in northern ireland um, but particularly in other countries as well very traditional forms of agriculture you know brilliant grass-fed beef brilliant mm -hmm. grass-fed um sheep um some people still holding on to the small units of eggs, you know, very close to where I live, something fascinating has happened in the last five years. I can get my eggs from someone who sells them on the side of the road with an honesty box, and they're absolutely wonderful. And I wouldn't say it's queued out, but there's always somebody there trying to get some. There's someone also out the road who just retired from politics and started growing amazing vegetables, pretty much on an organic basis. <laughs> About a mile from him as well there's another food producer a really really great producer of artisan rare breed um pigs they produce them with some more amazing pork products and these are located just by chance almost 
but it's almost a symbol of the way things are going to go in the future as well. I can get my apples and get my eggs and get meat if I want, um, you know, all within a mile of each other. I can nip out on the bike and do it, you know. It is just remarkable. A few miles from that are some of the most intensive um, factory farms you could ever imagine on these islands as well. Mm. But something is changing to support those local businesses as well. And you see it in many other countries much more than the UK or Ireland. You see it in mm. France, you see it in Italy, you see it in many parts of Germany and, and also subsistence economies all around the world. You know, There are maybe a billion people in food cooperatives across the world at the minute producing very energy efficient food of extremely good quality that are selling locally. And so, you know, there's there's a myth that efficiency is created by some of these big corporations. The most efficient food production systems are the localized ones that rely on regenerative organic farming. And these are the ones that are still doing really well across the world. You just don't hear their story because they don't have a voice, they don't have political power. Mm. But that is the way in which things are inevitably going to go. We're going to have better food. We're going to have healthier children. We're going to live longer. We're going to taste better food. We're going to enjoy supporting local communities. And we're going to get, say goodbye to these multinational corporations. Mm. I mean, I think one of the greatest things that the hipster movement ever gave us was making local food cool again. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but <laughs> do you think that the, the, the lockdown itself and, and the sort of the, the global pandemic has given us like a good kick in this direction? Do you think that, that it's, it's sort of made people realize how much great food they can get close to their own house? Like, Yeah, like the, the, these things, you know, I remember listening to John Banville on radio the other day, the Irish author, and he was saying, you know, are, are people changing because of COVID? And he said, actually, no, people never really change. <laughs> and that's not the answer I wanted to hear. But the more I thought about it was that, yeah, always, you know, for the last 30 years, you know, you know, our supermarkets have got bigger and bigger and our global food supply chains have got even more complex and concentrated power and wealth in the hands of a tiny few people. And we're destroying the land in the last 30 years and the soils and our atmosphere and our wetland systems in ways that we could never imagine. At the time of the birth of the environmental movement, you know, around the 70s, we've seen this massive deterioration in quality and pollinators and insects and microbes in the soil. So we, we've unleashed this monster onto the land and onto the water and against our human health systems as well. But people always wanted decent food and local food and healthy food. And so many parts of the world still rely on that. It's just we have an obsession in this particular tiny part of the world and, you know, of bending over backwards to satisfy the needs of and the greeds of these corporations. So I I think John Banfield is probably right. People never really change because this is only aberrant behavior within a generation mm. that's concentrated um, pesticides and chemicals into our food chains as well as concentrated wealth. And it's, it's something I think that's very deep within us, you know. It's something maybe somebody is a bit older than you that remembers, you know, that, you know, in the house that I live in, at a big long garden and my bachelor great uncle was always tending the three or four hands, you know, always having um his own runner beans butter beans you know lettuce 
tomatoes in a greenhouse, potatoes, and so many people are coming back to that. So many people who don't have gardens are growing food in window boxes, mm-hmm. you know, even to get, you know, a few bits of rocket leaf to go with their salad, you know, instead of buying them out of a plant. So there's absolutely no doubt that this trend is continuing and it's getting better, but it's not new. It's, you know, it's a bit like, you know, the trade unions talked to me before about the sustainability of working class urban communities. They were the ones that set up allotments. They were the ones that cycled to work. They are the ones that appreciated local food and local community, you know. So these things aren't new. You know, what's new is the fact that our culture seems to be celebrating this idea that, you know, we have to have, you know, pork from, you know, 10,000 miles away or chicken mm-hmm. from 5,000 miles away and import everything from countries, you know, that's causing massive pressure on and drought on, on ecosystems. This is only aberrant, you know, recent behavior, you know. So, yeah, John Banfield, I think people don't really change. They really, really understand that what goes into your body is probably one of the most important things that defines you as a human being, you know, and mm-hmm. and this stuff, as you say, is as bad for nature as it is for the human spirit and the human body. Mm. That's definitely something I've I've uh, a way I've been I've been thinking the last uh, few months. I'm in the middle of writing um, my my second book. The first one hadn't even come out yet, but you know, COVID's <laughs> given COVID's given me lots of time. <laughs> but one of the things, one of the themes I'm really like uh, I've been exploring um, in some reading is the idea of rehumanization, so that we we have just in the last 30 or 40 years really lost our connection with things that we need really like deeply in our our i don't want to say soul but like really in our in our our body and our brain and our 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 very evolution like craves like social contact and interaction that's a big one that we've we've lost obviously especially at the minute but it's something that was already um disappearing with you know people people becoming more isolated because of um, just the way our, our entire society seems to be drifting and everyone seems being absorbed in their screens um, and the, the sort of rehumanization of, of discovering the joy of growing something out of the ground. Like just uh, my, uh, the one of the ones that, that is really entertaining me is uh, my best friend is has started growing avocado trees from his little seeds that he gets from in the avocados. And I mean, oh, it's, real hipster, aren't it, you? T- it takes ages, but he's never really like shown like an interest or, or had like that much many plants or anything in his apartment. He just, he's just like, you know, I'm going to start growing this avocado tree. <laughs> um, and he, he's, he's now got like three or four of them on the go. So it's just like little avocados with just little shoots out of them. And he says it's going to take seven to 10 years before he's going to show through <laughs> fruit. But while I was away during the summer, I was getting calls like every few days and he'd be sending me pictures and showing me and he was so proud of the avocado tree is really amazing to what and and just watching people like fascinated with just you know you you put some water on a seed and put it in the ground and 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 something grows like this is really it's really it's really amazing a very fundamental and, and basic level is like all you need to do is put it in the ground give it water and wait at, at the very base level that's 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 amazing that's magic in a way <laughs> You're just creating something out of nothing, just giving it time. And I really think you're you're probably right in in that this has been a, a break the last thirty years. There's been a slow loss of of some of the things that really make us human. And and I hope that the the, the lockdown and the pandemic can provide a nice little circuit break, <laughs> to use their own 
stupid language against them um in in our in how we think about a lot of things and and hopefully we can uh make something positive out of it but uh just to wrap up um because i'm aware that um we're running a bit longer than expected and I have uh, another meeting I have to go to. But just to, to finish up, like, is there anything that you're working on in in particular at the moment that you'd like to plug? Any case or or just um, project that you'd like to to mention or or highlight? Yeah, I touched on it at the beginning, you know, and it's it's this idea, Josh, that um, one of the other failed concepts about our, the human project and the world at the minute is that. It's as if we think that we have come out. No, sorry. It's as if we think we have come to the earth instead of having come out of the earth. Mm. You know, and, and that idea of pulling a carrot out of the ground and the joy that when you planted the seed three months early, it's, it's just oh, it's just so joyous and it just touches, you know, a really deep need within the human spirit to connect head, hands and heart, but also connect us back to the earth as well. And that brings me to maybe something I could make a pitch for on your interview, which is also something I mentioned earlier, but increasingly I think is is a concept of rights. It's a theory of jurisprudence around ecological rights and the fact that other species and ecosystems that we depend on for our health and our future survivability, that we give them at least the same rights as we give machines, if we give um, corporations, PLCs, limited companies. And I think the the new frontier for this type of work in the future is to link not just the rights of nature, but to the rights of communities. You know, certainly nature, you know, has a right in itself to clean air. Communities have a right to clean air as well. And I think we too often in the environmental world and other worlds have seen those two elements of, you know, like an egocentric approach as opposed to an anthropocentric approach. And I think we tie in the rights of communities with the rights of nature. I think that's the the frontier of environmentalism in the future. And the more I go to court and the more I see discussions taking place within the planning system, which is our democratic way of navigating our way through decision-making at a local level. And the more I see how, you know, these wider principles of well-being and public good and the public interest are being corrupted by a system which breaks everything down into its component parts. Mm. You know, when we reframe our imagination to say that Loch Ness has a right to flourish, the RIC has a right to flow, that the fish in those oceans have a right to migrate, that birds that breed in Canada have a right to come to Northern Ireland because they've been doing it for thousands of years. The more we see those global interconnections and the more more we codify those into principles of culture and law, then I think the, the, the more likely it is that our food culture will emerge again from the ravages of industrialized factory farming. Um, because these are also questions of perception. That's how we perceive our place in the world and how we perceive our reality. And our reality is interdependent with the reality of other species and ecosystems. So, yeah, that's my plea. It's to exhort a new type of um, legal authority and a new type of jurisprudence, which is based on 
the rights of all species and all systems to be able to survive and flourish and evolve. Mm. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. Um, thanks very much, James. It's uh, It's been a pleasure. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.